Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is architect and designer Tom Trenelone. We talk about design, our built environments, and beauty, including the beauty he creates and finds in and around Omaha. Trenelone also talks about founding Design Alliance Omaha, aimed at elevating design awareness and appreciation. You know, you're supposed to go out into the world, you do your part, you get educated, and as you're out there, you're picking up metal filings of all the different places you've been, and then you come back to this wonderful place we call home, you turn the magnet off, and the intention is those filings become rich, uh, they become seeds and things that grow up. Tremlone is an architect and design advocate with the international architecture and engineering firm HDR Architecture Inc., where he currently serves as a design director and senior vice president, currently based in Omaha, Nebraska. Trenlone has led teams working on architectural designs across the world, including the U2 Landmark Tower competition in Dublin, Ireland, the Hinoki Cho Performing Arts Center in Tokyo, Japan, and the USCE Center in Belgrade, Serbia. He is not only the recipient of numerous accolades and awards, but has been a juror on many awards competitions. Trenlone was named the 2019 HDR Fellow for his research proposal entitled Saving Main Street USA, an investigation into the critical access hospital as urban anchor in rural communities. Trenlone's public advocacy for design has included founding Design Alliance Omaha, a nonprofit focused on greater design awareness in Nebraska and Western Iowa. Tom Trenlone, welcome to Lives. Hey, Stuart, it's good to see you. Your core professional accreditations are as an architect. Your uh, professional title is design director, and I know you have a passion for design advocacy. If there is one, what is the distinction between design and architecture? I think one thing that's always important about the architecture part that's probably not the sexiest element is that ultimately when you design an architecture, you are licensed because you take on the safety of the public. Much like an engineer, it is about the idea that we're responsible for, once you come into a building that I've worked on, I am responsible to make sure that if something bad like a fire would happen, that you and your your loved ones can get out safely. With colleagues, when we discuss is architecture art, which I, I truly believe it is, it has its art with, uh, you know, some very specific restrictions. And, and anyone that's ever done a building project where you've had to deal with permits in the city and all of those things, they can typically be incredibly difficult. I would tell you that, like, when you see really great architecture, that some of the issues that come with that from a design standpoint that you wouldn't necessarily have to do with a necessarily with a product. I mean, and landscape architects have to deal with this, interior designers have to deal with it when the public comes into play. It's one of the reasons we have the licenses. But uh, design, though, is one where it's a, va- it's a vast category. And this is a bit of hubris, but a lot of architects, we like to think that we've reached the pinnacle of design because we can do all of those things. 
right? You can, we can come back and we could become a software engineer, you know, or user interface. Not saying that necessarily I would be good at that. That's I want to make sure that the world knows that's not what I'm saying. But the intention is is that you know, as an architect, you can typically do a building, you could do a font. I mean, Massimo Vignelli, right? A great graphic designer, studied as an architect. But ultimately, he became the you know probably one of the godfathers of of graphic design, the king of the grid. You know Michael Beirut, who's a you know a contemporary Michael Beirut. Michael Beirut is a great example with Vignelli. He ties into architecture, but also graphic design, and so there's these wonderful uh, crossovers. I think that's the thing is designers crossover and architects are just a specific uh, genre of of designer. Actually, that's helpful to think about design being an overarching, as it were, category. As you were talking, one of the things that I thought about as being a unifying feature, perhaps, of both design and architecture is the concept of beauty. And I don't know how that feels to you as, as it were, as a unifying feature. Well, it's beauty, too, and then process. Like, if you think about it, good friends that are graphic designers or, uh, you know, their process of doing a poster or uh, a publication still has the same thing if uh, you have your idea your ideation you have your conceptualization of it you have to do to the development of it you need to go through the process of creating how you're going to fabricate it or construct it and then ultimately you have to work with either a printer or someone else to do that the process is the same it just happens to be that everybody works in different mediums it's uh i don't know it's the exciting thing about like one of the reasons like you know um I, when I came back to Omaha and we started Design Alliance Omaha, it was simply the fact that I, mean, I love that stuff. I geek out about it. I love to hear people's stories of how they get into it. I love to hear how how they did it. And I think that's just a bit of in, you know, just being awesomely curious, right? Um, and it's, it just happens to be my one place that I geek out. It's like like some people are about, you know, baseball. They can go that deep into baseball. I like to do it from a from a design standpoint. And I love to hear the crossovers of like the story I was just telling you about Massimo Vignelli studies architecture, but ultimately makes the transition into graphic design primarily and then goes into product design. And, you know, it's interesting that when you talk to each one of those, their passion is is probably the same. They all have different stories, but, uh, and then like you were talking about with beauty, they all have a knack for a sense of proportion, composition, you know, they really couldn't get into that. And that's one of those things when you ever sit down and have like dinner with another architect friend or a designer friend, that's usually the commonalities that bind everybody together. As you were describing some of the functional requirements of architects around, for example, public safety and issues like that, it made me think about the concept of risk. And therefore I was wondering, are designers inherently more risk takers that's a fair that's a fair question i think that yes we are but you know ben van Berkel. i don't know if you're familiar with un studio as a as a group and uh, ben van Berkel is an architect and then his partner carolyn boss is an artist and they talk a lot about this it is one where it's really tough because you're working with other people's money typically as an architect and so you're wanting to do something dynamic and unique but at the same time, like, you know, it's like, it's not yours, really. I mean, you know, design is not a, we used to have a big thing where we used to think it was a lone genius, and it's really not. If you ever look at great, great buildings, right, the list of world-class consultants is typically first on that. 
world-class engineer, world-class graphic designer, world-class interior designer, um, all of those people. And then, how do you want to say, a courageous client, a client that is sometimes, you know, it's going to be really difficult. My uncle, Skip O'Keefe, was head of O'Keefe Elevator Company. And at one time, he hired my colleague, Mike Hamilton, uh, to redesign their building, which is across from the new downtown city library branch. And I remember I was living in Texas at the time, and I had seen him. I'd been up to Omaha, and I had talked with him. And I said to Skip, remember, the most important thing is there's going to be a moment in this process where you're going to feel really uncomfortable. They're going to take you to a place where you're not necessarily ready to go. And all I want to tell you is that that's good. I said, if both the architect and the client are in points where they're uncomfortable at a pretty regular basis, that means that you're on the right path to get to a great, you know, a great outcome. And it's hard because it's one of those things where I always tell people that it's like, it's like skydiving, right? Just there's certain times that you have to step up to your client. And I've said this a number of times, like, just don't pull the rip cord yet. It's not time. I promise you that it's going. We're going to land safely, but don't pull it there. And I said, and there's a lot of trust that has to happen. And you can think, in this day and age, trust is not the easiest thing to come by, right? And I think that's probably one of the biggest things. With lots of people say that great designers are just fantastic sales salespersons, and they go out and they, you know, really convince people of things. I think that that's part of it, but I also believe that they build relationships with their clients. And this is hard because like in a in a world where business seems to be more and more important all the time, like the business metrics are business metrics for healthcare, business metrics for this, business metrics for that. Uh, I think back to Jerry Maguire and, you know, it's Dickie Fox, you know, Jerry's mentor, it comes in and he said, this business is all about personal relationships. And I think any designer who's had a great outcome I would say nine times out of 10, I don't know if I can say 100% of the time, they have a wonderful client and they have built, a, you know, they built a relationship of trust. Um, and sometimes that, that trust is strained. It's not, I, I also tell people that if you're, if it's really easy from start to beginning for a, a really great project, you're probably not doing it right. I don't know a single great project that hasn't had a moment where People are ready to walk away. People are ready to strangle each other. But, you know, you got to if you have a good relationship, you'll be able to to navigate that. You have had to navigate this in your career. Is there a project that you could use to illuminate and illustrate what is this process, not only of building connections, but actually ending with a product that perhaps no one was really expecting? I practice the one thing that I do do that's probably different than a lot of my contemporaries is I do tend to do hospitals. Um, my and they're not super sexy sometimes because they have a lot of things, but they're my father. I don't for my story is my father was a my father was a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, and he was uh, he was uh, part of the Marine detachment on the hospital ship uh, Sanctuary, and I think that that got my dad in the hospital bug and. He ended up becoming a hospital administrator once he became a civilian. And uh, one of the reasons I've lived up, my family's moved all over the place was my dad went from big hospital project to the next, to the next, to the next. And I think that the um, the exciting thing about that always was um, I used to do rounds with my father on Thanksgiving or the holidays. 
and my dad was big about going and seeing everybody that was working the holiday. And I just remembered the uh, how much those people, you know, the fact that uh, I've never been scared of hospitals. I've always looked at them as a place where um, this is where you go and people take care of you. It's like one of the places where people take care of you the best and trying to make environments that let them do that. So I would say that when it, when it comes to it, that some of the things I'm most proud of, and it's not saying that there, the others aren't, but it's like being able to create some of those environments have been probably the most rewarding. Now, my father's not with me anymore, so I think it's another one where I feel like I'm, uh, you know, that's a connection back to him and the fact that we've been able to do that. And then um, most of them that I really are the ones I'm, I'm working on a project in Chicago right now for uh, if you know North Lawndale and Cicero and um, Little Village, it's a very black and brown part of the city. St. Anthony Hospital is, we've been working with them to try to create a community campus that works on along the same ideas as that Saving Main Street Fellowship that you mentioned. And being able to talk about how that can help for bank better urban environments that aren't necessarily about medical procedures, but just about healthy living or making the hospital less about a place that you end up as a place that can just kind of keep you on a healthy track, just checking you every year. I mean, I do my checkups every six months just because that's the way that it goes. But, you know, to come back, the long answer is, is like, um, there's a, there's a monumental hospital in Dallas, Texas that I got to do early on in my career. And it was one where one, it was blew my mind that a city like Dallas would pass the bonds that they did to build their main county hospital. And then the process of some of the leadership, and it's really sad because like uh, Walter Jones was one of, uh, he's a he's a black ar architect, studied at Princeton, led that. And Walter just recently lost a battle with cancer and passed away. It was really sad. But Walter led that with a lot of other people. I don't mean to just leave anybody out. But he was courageous at moments where it really helped navigate as a great client. And if you ever see that building, it, one, it's huge. I, I get that. And some people, big stuff is tough. But the other one is it doesn't, it, it, it is unique, but it is efficient. And it does all these great qualities. And it's, I don't know how many years it is. I think it just won a, it just won an award recently in Dallas for like over the last 25 years that it was one of the more significant buildings in the city. Um, but that was one that I was, I was really proud of that one. And it was, I said, great client, great colleagues, um, wonderful camaraderie. In fact, like the teams of people that there are still friends with to this day. I, I really like the story about why you are drawn to healthcare buildings. And I like that you describe the feeling you have that these are places where you go to be cared for. What are you thinking about, though, when you think about the human that has to be in this space? With the relation to really big stuff, like we're, we're one of those specialties is those we're talking about very large buildings, right? And distance, it's, it's one of those things where it almost becomes an exercise in urban planning versus just straight out architecture. The idea that like if you imagine your elevator cores become kind of the the train stations so think about your subways or the tube you know type of thing 
and you start putting diameters around those so that you know that the distance that you know like when you you're in New York or you're in London and you get up you've got you know so many so many blocks that you walk away from the tube and you know that that's a comfortable distance to do it and that's usually the deal is that you have to understand that like when you're building spaces for the especially for the staff that you're creating their neighborhood for a vast majority of their life i mean they come to work they do you know nurses doctors they do really long shifts i mean if you think about just some of the courageous things that the folks at the med center did recently during covid and this happened all over the place but i mean uh sometimes when we design we are so focused about like going back to that business part of it right or efficiencies we forget about the fact that those doctors and nurses aren't they're not robots they're good folks and sometimes when they reach that point they need to have a moment where a place where they can go and there's so many times we design it to the point where they simply you know there's nowhere for when that moment hits you think about the rush of a, a time that you've had a rush of emotion just hit you where you're just like i can't go any further this is the toughest thing i've done i mean i don't have that happen very often most days at the office they see it you know especially recently i mean it's it's something that they deal with and making sure that we have that kind of environment where they can find a moment and a respite that they can go to um, you know, take into consideration that the old institutional greens or something and bring, you know, again, that's when you call on your graphic design friends to come in and work with you where the idea of uh, working on patterns of biophilic patterns, things that make us feel comfortable and safe, um, you know, that wonderful dapple that comes from the shade of a tree or something like that. They always talk about, they paint the picture and the biophilic thing of you're up on a hill, you have a canopy of trees over you, and that is so you know that as the primitive person that we used to be, uh, and you take for you take for an assumption that behind you is is protection as well. You can see anything coming at you from below, and nothing above can see you because you're in the canopy of trees. That's supposed to be our most comfortable environment. I, that's what they tell me, at least. I, I, I don't know if I can honestly say that that's what it is, but but the intention is that sometimes in that's been the, the toughest part in that battle recently is balancing the patient who is always central to all of that. And like you said, is the per reason that all of us are, you know, when we design, we design for the patient, the staff are there for the patient. Um, but it's making sure that you do um, environments that are really great for people altogether. You have people that come to visit and we don't want, um, and it's hard because it's a, an, Healthcare facilities never really are just like, you don't really want to go there. I mean, but when you do, the intention is, is that you don't want it to be a bad experience. So then to turn to urban planning, um, what are the kinds of theories or philosophies that sort of underpin how you think about urban planning? I think the toughest part right now, especially after COVID, was we were really big about density, density, density. And I think one of the things that I can tell you as a, a Nebraska resident, I love my city of Omaha, but I do like the fact that I can get out to wide open spaces. I think, I don't know about you, but my, um, the time during COVID, if it was not for the wonderful uh, Zerinsky Lake that we have as a, as a public park uh, and watershed, you know, element, that kept my sanity during COVID. Almost every single day I would 
I would get bundled up. And so I think when you think about this, and, and I, it would be an interesting thing to have a conversation with, with some fellow colleagues on this one too, because it's interesting to hear all the different opinions. But it's the ability to have uh, compression and decompression. You know, when you get together, sometimes you want you want density and tightness. Like one of the conversations we've been having a lot around 72nd and Dodge because of the library is that we have to keep the state highway running. But the idea is that really wide streets allow cars to go faster, uh, slower. You know, uh, uh, Janet Sadekan, who was the commissioner for the city of New York, she was the one that started putting all the paint and planters up. And that was all about the fact of creating a little bit tighter location so that when you're driving with your car, you're just a little bit slower. And I think that that's that whole point, right? But because with every moment of compression like that, and you have places where, um, you know, uh, you know, in Tokyo and other places where it's super, super dense, is that ability to keeping everybody sane is that decompression space. And the example that we used on like the Omaha Central Library was the great space that we all, you know, Bryant Park, everybody references it, right? It's, it's wonderful. And it, it's one where you go from a dense city street with, you know, hustle and bustle, you step up about eight feet, you walk through about, oh, 20, 25 feet of trees, and you walk into a green oasis in the middle of the city, and there's decompression. And that's, that's kind of one of those things. And, and you know what's funny about it? It's like the yin and yang, and it's balance. We have to have moments where it is good to be dense and compressed it's good for economics. It's good for, um, you know, not destroying natural habitats that with every time that our, in our great state, every time our city continues to expand out to the West and not to take anything away from the great economics of development and whatnot, you know, we plow over a cornfield or we take over another creek. It's, you know, there is habitat for, you know, wonderful, you know, wildlife and stuff that's, that's there. And it's one of the benefits of living in this part of the world, right? We can, take 20 minutes and you're out there. Like I have a, um, when I worked for, I worked for Randy Brown Architects before I went to HDR. And one of the things that uh, my colleague Bill Droin and I did when we were at Randy's is we actually helped uh, Tom Bragg who runs uh, the um, the pyro uh, ecology group at UNO. I think, at least I think he still does that. But so he does a lot of prairie burns and he did a, they did a wonderful uh, reserve that's out at, uh, on State Street, that's called the Glacier Creek Preserve, and I've gone out that you go out there and walk, and they have a they have a barn and everything that's out there, and it's one of those things where um, it's exciting, but it's not it's not very it's not very urban. And I think the conversation that we were having prior is this kind of strange affinity that I have for people in the Midwest to be able to oscillate between big urban topics and then being able to come down to like things like that where. There's a lot of people that don't give us a lot of credit because we don't have the ocean and we don't have mountains. But at this time of year, like my one of my favorite times of year in Nebraska, and this doesn't really answer your urban planning question, but when you get to go out when it's you know twelve below and it's there's it's so cold that nothing can be in the air, but you've had snow and you have this beautiful blue sky because nothing is in the air. It's just too it's too cold. Nothing can alight in something that cold. I guess I don't know. But you can see the golden, like the like the. If you go out to the Glacier Creek and they, the sun, the snows come down. But then you have, you know, the the and it's not it's not brown. It's not ugly. It's golden. It's like this beautiful color of of prairie grass that comes up through there. That's like a that's a special thing. It's one of the reasons I think Amy and I, uh, 
behind the scenes, one of the reasons we made our return to Nebraska is, is moments like that. And you just in New York is awesome. Oslo, you know, I've, I've gotten the wonderful thing of being able to travel around the world. But I love coming home here. Those are things that I that I love. And I look at that as that's part of that decom- the ability to decompress, right? After you've had your moment of working out and, you know, concrete and whatnot, that's like that ability to go out. You, you mentioned that you've worked around the world, you've traveled around the world. You, you've seen a lot of how people live in their spaces, how their spaces influence how they live. What are other places for you getting right, and maybe even wrong, that perhaps we here could translate and apply to our setting? Well, we talked about, you know, just before we got on the air, we talked about Oslo, right? We've had, I've had, I've gotten to travel to Oslo three times. And the first time I was there is just after they finished their, the, and Snowheda, who did the Joslin, right? One of their claims to fame is they did the opera house in the fjord there in Oslo. It's fantastic. If you ever get a chance to go, uh, and it is, it is. but we recently went back when we were doing trips for the Central Library, right? And we went to see the Dijkman, which blows your mind because the Dijkman, when I went to Oslo the first time and saw the Snowheda Opera House, the location of the Dijkman was a traffic circle, a multi-level traffic circle. Go back uh, almost eight years later. And it is now the site of their central library with buses on both sides. They reshuffled all of that traffic and they made something that was probably one of the more, they had a huge gigantic bridge that had to go over it so you wouldn't get killed by cars. But what they've done with that is they've completely transformed it into an incredible pedestrian place. And it is busy because this the the termini is there, the, the train station stops there. So the train station comes from the airport I mean, these are things that, you know, like we're like the streetcar, all the controversy around the streetcar. It's like we used to have the streetcar. It's like and I get it that, you know, budgets are tough and everything. But it is like the vibrancy that public transportation does and the density that can help you create. But it allows you to, without an automobile, search out your decompression. Right. The idea that. You can get on the streetcar and you could come down and go to the Eugene Lee Mall that we've just done. I mean, there's so many positive. I, I can tell you that I've now been back in Omaha. My, my son was two when we moved here, so we, and he is now about ready to uh, celebrate his 20th birthday. And in the time when Amy and I were making our uh, pro and con list of do we move back, because we had so many roots and family here, we thought we, what we saw – that many years ago is that, yeah, they were they were doing it. All this stuff was in the place. There are one there. There's some wonderful leaders. Some you know the generation ahead of me. I think there's some wonderful gener- uh, generations right now that are just starting to come into their own. And it's one where like, wow, you got it's it's neat. And then when you get to see moments like that, where it's like, yeah, you you know we we've talked about this a little bit when we were before we were on air. It's like my trust in people. Sometimes it doesn't always happen as fast as you want it to, but there's a lot of times that I feel like Omaha has done the thing where we took a, a position of, yeah, we think this is going to happen and we think they're going to pull it off. And 
I think that that's one of those situations. And I think that the fact that they're willing to look at other places, like you said, Oslo. The other one I have to, like a great affinity for mine is when graduate school, I got the chance to live in Siena, Italy, and I got to live in Berlin, Germany for a while. In Siena, we studied urban planning. The Campo it was great. You know, you go down and it was really kind of cool because it had a bunch of um, American kids. I mean, UCLA, Kansas State, all these folks had a bunch of, can- uh, uh, you know, graduate programs that were there. And so you'd go down and the UCLA law people would be on this end of the compo. And, and hopefully there was some, re- there was some locals, but it always seemed to be, you'd run into, it's another American from another university or something like that. Right. Um, but then you went up to uh, Berlin and I recently was back there for a, 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 comp- a company meeting. We're a worldwide company and we were in uh, Berlin to, and they were hosting a, a meeting of the design directors at the, at the Berlin studio. And one night we went to dinner and this, uh, it was, it was just so crowded. There's, and you can imagine it's, we're from Sydney to, you know, Sydney to London and then the United States and Canada. We've, I've got a lot of colleagues, but it was so busy. And I grabbed a colleague of mine from New York, Mohammed Ayub. And Mohammed's a, Mohammed's a, an Iraqi that, you know, but he's a, he likes to say, he likes to remind me he's Brit, British chartered architect. A chartered architect is very important. It's not just he's Reba, he's a chartered architect. But I grabbed Mo and I said, come with me. I said, we're going to go to the east side of the city where my old uh, flat was. There's a place we can get a donor kebab on a picnic table and a beer. And it's awesome. And we went there and like nothing had changed, right? Showed up, this, you know, the same guys. And we're talking 20, no, it's not the whole 20. It's probably only, it's 15 years after graduate school at this point, Right. And the same two guys, they're older, but they're still running donor kebab in East East Berlin. And the, you know, the picnic table's there underneath this, you know, the the S-Bahn, you know, the the overhead train and the U-Bahn's the lower train. But it was and it's one and the interesting thing is like when we lived there, here's another story about urban planning. It's like the difference of the commercial West versus the, you know, communist East was really like when you see the the way that urban planning was done there. I mean, talk about wide open spaces. We used to joke to say that every street in an East German uh, city was designed so that at least three tanks abreast to each other could go down it. And in the West side, it was they were tight. They had little shops. And you could see why people, just in the environment sometimes, is why somebody would be willing to risk life and limb to go over that, that wall. And it was, and by far, that's not the most important part of it, right? But... In those times when you get a chance to live there, I think the other one, too, is that, you know, um, when you're on an airplane and you're going somewhere and the communication comes up, where are you from? And you say Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, they always tilt their head just a little bit to the side. And it's like and what I like to think of is I have a I have a love for, like, like you said, Berlin and Siena. They're all great. But I said, you know, I've figured out one thing and I think we got it right is that. Nebraska and Omaha is uh, my is my home. I'm very proud of it. It's one where I'd like to. Um, I want more and more people to see some of the great stuff that we're doing, and and I I enjoy that. I was I think I, I love going places, but I do have to admit there's always kind of a wonderful feeling of being on the plane to Omaha coming back. The blank look when when you say I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, I think gives an opportunity. Really, for for me, and, in, and maybe in this case you, to think about. So, what is it I want to share about Omaha that is going to fill in this blank canvas for this person in in front of me? 
And I, I'm starting to see that as a real opportunity now, not only for myself to reflect on what is it about Omaha that makes me call this home? And also, what is it about the person in front of me that gives me this opportunity to share with them? This is why, actually, you won't have a blank look next time. It'll actually be a surprise and happy look if you meet someone else from Omaha, Nebraska. I do remember one of the most interesting ones is I, I did. A, so you talked about Ushe, which was one of the buildings in Belgrade, Serbia that I worked on. Believe it or not, I got the job of <laughs> reskinning the Central Committee headquarters in Belgrade, Serbia, after the United States Navy put three Tomahawk missiles into it, uh, blew one up on the top to blow out the, the transmission tower, one central mass to knock out the TV station, and then another one in this, the bottom of the building to basically incinerate the records that the committee was using for bad things. They were They were trying to find people. And the funny thing was, is that the client there was, um, was, was uh, I won't say his name, but it was the general at the time. He was the second richest man in Serbia, and we were never allowed to talk about anything more than uh, we couldn't talk about anything before or before 1990. I, I don't know what he. I think it was gun running or something. You know how it goes. People make their billions. But the interesting thing was, I was having dinner with all of them one night, and they asked me where I was from, and I said Omaha, Nebraska, and they. It was just really funny because a couple of them did the thing where they did it, but the the chief financial officer looked at me and he was like, oh, the home of the Oracle. (laughs) I was like, he's like, Warren Buffett lives in Omaha, Nebraska. I said, yeah, that's that's right. And I was like, it was the weirdest thing because I had been flying to there where I would leave the States and I would fly into Zurich and then I would catch my flight to, and the minute I left Zurich, I mean, I was usually one of the few American, if I was the only American on that plane. I remember one time I ran into a couple that was coming, uh, her husband, it was a husband and wife and her husband was going to join the, the security detail at the embassy. And, uh, I used to look them up and have dinner with them after that because it was the only time. I mean, I hadn't run into many Americans ever, but it was so funny that that was the one thing that you know, in one of the weirdest, pla- you know, parts of the world. I mean, the Danube. It's beautiful. It's a really neat place. It's. It was really kind of sad on on some of the circumstances before. You know, if anybody ever tells you about that mistake we made by hitting the Chinese embassy, it looked like we. It wasn't much of a deal at the front end, but man, coming out the back, it was. It was pretty. It was pretty devastating. It was one of those things where, um, seeing in real life, sometimes that kind of stuff really makes you appreciate the safety of of where we live. Right. I'd sit there and think about that. It's like, especially in this day and age, right now, it's like you know I can't imagine ever hearing you know the anger of war or something in the you know in our city streets and whatnot. It's. It's one of those things where, because if you ask me, you know, it's like, maybe that's part of it. There's a there's an insulation at this part of the world in Omaha, but I love the fact that when I when I see people and they cock their head and whatnot, they just I don't think they appreciate the you know the ingenuity and sometimes how well we we you know if we were a boxer, right? We we really hit above our weight. If you think about just our population, right? How many awesome people do what they do and they influence big things in all kinds of ways. And it all comes out of this little, you know, two million people, you know, in this this place. There's got to be something special about that. You have been a contributor to what has made that vibrancy of this place an integral part of what does make Omaha special. And one example of that is your 
passion around design, your advocacy for design as an integral part, not only of just what we do professionally, but how we think about living our lives. And in that regard, one example among many is Design Alliance Omaha, which you founded many years ago now. So, so let's quickly talk about that. What is Design Alliance Omaha, but, but what was its genesis? Oh, well, we came back. So we talked about, you know, this idea of, you know, there's a, I think that there's an unwritten code for people that are from Omaha that, you know, you're supposed to go out into the world, you do your part, you get educated, but you're supposed to go out into the world. And like I, we talked about it, I use the analogy of, of a magnet. And as you're out there, you're picking up metal filings of all the different places you've been. You know, I've had a number of Southern accents. I've, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Denver, Colorado, Longview, Texas. Matthew McConaughey actually went to the high school across the tracks from me. You know, that's one of my claims of fame in uh, Class 88, Pine Tree High School. But the interesting thing is, like, you pick up all of this stuff. And, and like you said, Italy and, and Germany, you learn about how they do things. And then you come back to this wonderful place we call home. And then the intention is you turn the magnet off. And the intention is those filings become rich. Uh, they become seeds and things that grow up. And the, one of the beautiful things about uh, Omaha, maybe different than New York, is that um, some of that infrastructure already exists there. I was I was living in Dallas, Texas when I moved back to Nebraska. And they had a wonderful organization, just turned 25 years old, actually, called the Dallas Architecture Forum. And it was one of those things where on a Thursday night, you would go to the Dallas uh, Museum of Art and you could see a fantastic lecture. You could see Rem Coolhouse. You could see, you know, Christian Potsen Park. You could, you know, all these these great architects and designers, right? And it was one of those things that when we made our pros and cons sheet about moving back to Nebraska, that was a con. No great. I mean, there, the AIA did some nice lectures. I don't want to take away from that. There's some colleagues that put some great stuff together. And we've kind of, you know, we've kind of, uh, COVID did a number on us where we, that was tough because it was a really social thing. But when we first, the idea came in, I was like, yeah, this is one of those things that we got to fix this. And plus the other one is, um, I had been away from Nebraska. Uh, Amy and I had been away for a decade. We had lived away for 10 years. We didn't graduate school. We'd been overseas. We've done our time in Texas and all these things. And when you came back, um, there were still people that you knew. Some things hadn't changed, but a lot have had. And it was one where it also introduced where I think I'm a, I like to think I'm relatively introverted. People don't think there's people that challenge that, but it was an opportunity for me to be able to reach out and I just started cold calling, uh, you know, people like, uh, uh, you know, I called Drew Davies just out of the blue and I said, you know, I was going to do this thing. What do you think? Would you be willing to start it? And the, the toughest part about it was uh, I didn't know anything about fundraising. I really got it started. It was a bunch of really some great young people. Hesse McGraw, who's now at the, you know, the, the Contemporary Art Museum of Houston. Um, but they were all young Omahans that were doing their thing, and so we put them all together. And the intention was, uh, so we're going to we're going to create this. And then the Joslin, you have to give the Joslin a lot of credit because I came in with a crazy idea with really no money, and I said, "Hey, I just need a place to put this on, and I don't have any cash. Would you be willing to?" And they're like, you know, they opened up the Witherspoon, right? 
And once that was done, we were able to write a couple letters. And the fir- interesting thing was like our first year, we wrote letters to um, Tom Main, who I don't know if you're familiar with, is, a, is an architect with Morphosis, a Pritzker Prize winner, big deal. But fortunately for us at the time, he was doing a, a museum down in Dallas, the Perot Museum. So he was halfway here when he was there for, uh, for you know, project meetings. So all we did was we just had to pick up the extra flight to get him to Omaha and then get him back to L.A., and he was in. And at the same time, we wrote uh, we wrote a letter to Bruce Mao of the graphic design fame, right, out of Toronto. And he also had offices in Chicago. They had just opened up, and they both said yes. And we were like, holy crap, that's incredible. But it was like we had no money. So when we brought these guys, then they all came in, and that's kind of the genesis that started it. But it was simply the fact that Omaha offers opportunities sometimes because there are still uh, things to fill to make us into this vibrant metropolis that we want to be. And I feel like, you know, there's been lots of people that have had that opportunity given to them. I mean, and, you know, it it takes a little bit of gumption. But I find that the incredible thing is that usually when you have that idea and you go see um, some of the folks in um, there's so many I should probably mention that, you know, from a standpoint, but I just don't want to leave anybody out. But, I mean, there are so many people that were generous with their money and other things to let us, you know, do that. And sometimes it was one of those things where I, what I love about Nebraska sometimes is that folks that have a little bit of cash are always cool if you can offer up, you know, if you're willing to do the sweat equity, they'll help you out on that part. Because, I mean, I've never been a person of extreme wealth or means, but I'm willing to put in the sweat equity if I can. And I'll, you know, get things started. And I'm very fortunate that I've had a, a number of people in the community that have backed, you know, I shouldn't even say the the things that I've done with great partners. And then we've had great, uh, you know, patrons that have come in and helped back that. I'm not sure what you imagined. Maybe you didn't really have a clear vision, but whatever success looked like, have you seen that manifest itself in some way? Is it is it a greater sense of design in the community, a great appreciation of it? Is it public policy that now is more design aligned? What was your vision for what success might be with, with this kind of project and, and others? I, on, especially with Design Alliance Oma, it was specifically the fact that the next generation that came to town is that when the next group of professionals that leave and make their trip back is that the the place would be ready to receive them. Like there's friends of ours that were working in New York and they were practicing architecture. And the intention is that the toughest part about design sometimes is it is a competitive element, right? There's many good firms in the city of Omaha and Lincoln, and they're doing really great work. And sometimes we compete against each other. But the hardest thing to do is that in an environment like ours where it's limited and the fact that most people not always accepting of modern and more progressive design, you can't go tearing that down. You need to build the infrastructure. And that was what Design Alliance Omaha was about. It was one where the um, the ability to build an environment where, you know, to advocate for your fellow designers as opposed and, and be able to do that. Like one of the greatest um, tools that we had at the beginning is we actually signed ourselves up to be a Pechacucha city, right? Or Pechacucha or Pechachka, however you want to say it. A number of people go a lot of different ways. And Klein, uh, Mark Dytham and Astrid Klein in Tokyo created uh, Pechacucha. Well, we signed up. We were one of the first, uh, I think we were in 
I think we were our city 103 when we signed up. Right next to Oslo, right, by the way. <laughs> you know, we were right in we were right in front of Oslo. You know, it's like OM and o, you know OS, right? Um, and the thing that was probably my the most exciting thing there is that that offered us with that, you know, 20, 20 slides, 20 seconds kind of thing. I think the most successful ones were we had them at Blue Sushi and, and Slow Down. And it was just great because that was the local talent and you could get people to see that, right? And it was... Um, it's a little bit shorter than the wonderful things like the folks at TEDx have been doing, which I think is another one. You know, I have I just love watching, hearing everybody's stories there too. But I love those almost more than the big time lectures that we've done, because that creates that that wonderful foundation. But it, like I said, I would say that my dreams my dreams are becoming realities. I'm getting opportunities right now to be able to practice with my with other practitioners in the city that I really admired and I've been able to you know the idea of teaming is is not always a positive thing in the you know in the world of architecture it's always about that you know you want to have that you know this is this is mine kind of thing and I've never really been there I was like I was like to think of um, I think the recording industry had it right in regard to this where I like to think of um, I'm a bit of a uh, I'm a Katie cat. I'm not, I'm not a Swifty. I'm more of a Katie cat. But I love the fact that when they team up with something like Katy Perry and then it says featuring Nicki Minaj, right? And I love the idea of being able to say that this is me and then this is who I'm, this is who I'm working with this time and we're collaborating and doing something great. And uh, we're doing – that's one of those things, like I said, has come out. I think that uh, some of the relationships that were built out of DOMA have helped create that. But I also like to think that there is a generation that's coming up behind me. As I, you know, I told you, I've, I've ticked over the big five zero. Um, that are the generation behind me that I think that this is a better place to practice, and you're seeing great buildings being done by local people, taking away nothing from the great, uh, you know, firms that have come in to like work on the Jocelyn and stuff. But there's an incredible amount of talent, and it's interesting. Like when you have other architects come in for. Uh, design juries like we had the great carol ross barney i don't know if you know who carol is but she is a you know she's a gold medal winner or gold medal winner from the aia and just an incredible advocate for uh public design like she did the riverfront at chicago if you've been to chicago recently and gone along the riverfront that there's a number of other firms that have worked with carol on that carol ross barney on that but she came in and she was just totally blown away by the incredible work that's here or you talk to like someone like um, Marlon Blackwell, who's, you know, he's another one. He he left New York and uh, Syracuse and people are like, what the heck are you doing? And he went to, you know, Arkansas. What are you going to do in Arkansas? And again, lots of places that he could fill in really great design. And he's become just an incredibly lauded talent. And I think that I, I like to think that the that just like something, it's working its way upstream and there's stuff where it's like eventually, you know, some of those those lot of talents will come right out of our, our community here. Just a little bit of time. Clearly, uh, you've had already a long and productive professional career, as well as a personal vocation that has added to the betterment of the community. Let me put it that way. But as you look ahead in your life, what do you see that is going to keep you feeling fulfilled, that you're living into some sense of purpose, that you are making meaning that has a difference? Well, I mentioned a couple of the, like the project, the civic projects that we're working on right now, like the, the library, um, I think is one where an incredible group of people, it's not just me, um, 
but I mean that's that's a, an incredible gift to leave to the city, and I'm I'm thankful, I'm grateful every day that the, having the opportunity to do that, um, the con- the ability to add to the complex at the College of Architecture, you know, our only College of Architecture here, and but more important, almost even than doing the building, is like I've gotten to be I've. Um, on a regular basis, I'm I'm teaching. I'm actually teaching a course right now that is a design journalism course where we've uh, created a nonprofit magazine that features architects and designers in the state of Nebraska, and it gives young architects an opportunity to go and meet great practitioners here in the in the state um, at their place of work. We always talk about the it's the kind of the guiding principles behind it, or at least is there. It's like you know we want to talk about the the people importantly the people of who who's doing the work the places where they do do the work and then of course the projects that that are the outcomes of that and that's been that's been exciting and and it's one where i like going back to the university on a regular basis because i love i like being around um you know the young talent that's coming out because you know you know just like any of us right as exciting as we are about what we do every single day we have our moments when we get beat down you know you're you know the reality of things and there's a very you know monumental things of cost monumental things of schedule you know the idea that you're worried that you're not going to get it right and mistakes in architecture look at you every single day like i have a couple buildings i have to drive by and all i can ever see no matter what anybody tells me is exactly what i didn't get right on those right but I think that, yeah, I, my excitement there is that it's like I feel like I've done my part in uh, trying to make the the environment a little bit better. It's not quite as high, as, as high or as noble, I think, as some other things where, I, I mean, I'm not feeding the homeless or anything like that, but I have done this thing where I like to think that if there's one or two designers or, you know, designers, and I won't just say architects, but designers that come back to the city and can find a place and then they find create like we talked about at the beginning like coming full circle right courageous uh clients and because the the client had seen like a lecture at the design alliance or had you know the opportunity to to pick up a copy of unicameral i think my my part will been done i mean there's there's a lot of other lofty lofty you know things that people will be measured by but those are the little ones that i think that i'll leave behind and I would say, and the other one too is, is, is like, as I close this out one for you, it's like, um, the other one too is that, but all of those, the one thing again, it's all about the, it's, I've built really great relationships and met really great people. And I think that's one of the things that I, I think that's what will keep me young mostly is the fact that I just enjoy the, the relationships and some of the people that I've met along that journey. So. My guest today has been the architect Tom Trenelo. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Stuart. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Wow.
Well, it's, it's like asking if you have a favorite kid in some ways. And everybody does. They just say that they don't. <laughs> 